let's join with the angels. Let's turn that into a prayer right now, okay? Lord God, we just want to agree with those angels today who shouted glory to God in the highest. That's what we want to say to you from our own hearts. We pray that when we lift up songs like that this season, that it would not just be words from our lips, but that it would reflect what we are thinking of you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. We invite you now to teach us something from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm so glad you're here. Would you go ahead and have a seat? You know, a couple of years ago, I said something that I will never live down, okay? Because I have a daughter, a teenage daughter, who thrives on teasing me, okay? So she won't let me forget this moment. I was just trying to let off some holiday tension, you know? So I kind of mumbled under my breath some words I regret. I said, I hate Christmas. (laughs) It sounded pretty bad. You know, she tells me that I look just like this guy. (laughs) I didn't mean to sound like the Grinch. You know, it was just one of those moments when I whispered it out of being overwhelmed. You know, it was too many expectations. The calendar was too full. And I I just needed to, to let off some steam. You know, I'm really bummed that she heard me at all. Because the problem now is that she keeps quoting me. I mean, for two years. Huh. And the worst part is that now when she, when she says those words, re, you know, repeating me, she comes off sounding like this guy. <laughs> I mean, really, she sounds just like Gollum. She goes, I hate Christmas. <laughs> I swear, she, that's what she sounds like. You know, I... I just needed to tell you about that because I know somebody's going to run into Jordan out in the lobby, you know, and you're going to say to her, how was your Christmas? And she's going to go, terrible, because my mom hates Christmas. (laughs) Then you'll know what's going on there. But I just want to ask you, how are you doing with it all? Do you ever feel overwhelmed? You know, the life demands keep coming at you, don't they? Even though it's the season to be jolly. And... You you might just be trying to go through the motions. Maybe Christmas doesn't move the needle for you like it used to. And that's why I'm so grateful that our church is embracing this tradition called Advent. Because, you know, it's not about Christmas. It's about the arrival, the coming of Christ, isn't it? So we've been studying John, John's words in chapter 1. And we're digging into his fantastic Christmas account. I'm so grateful. And you know, studying this over the last couple weeks has given me a quiet gratitude. It has centered me because the experience of Christmas is not something to just endure. And it's sad when it becomes ho-hum, isn't it? It's a missed opportunity. I think if we can grasp what John is saying to us today, that it's going to give us a joy that just outlasts anything we're facing. So, Can I ask you to go ahead and get out your outline? It looks like this in a pen. And if you brought your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay, because all the verses are going to be there on your notes. John chapter 1 is where we've been studying through the Advent season. 
It's the Christmas story without all the traditional characters. There's no Mary and Joseph, no, no wise men. There's one main character, and it's Jesus. John is sharing the big picture of what's going on, kind of a bird's eye view, like this. Do you recognize where that is? That's where you're sitting right now. That was taken with a drone. Isn't that cool? It's like when you take the camera and you back it way up to get a broad perspective on what's going on. That's what John was doing for us. He was taking a look at what was happening from God's perspective. So, you ready? We're going to jump into the deep end here. You ready? Here we go. The first thing to know from what John tells us, starting in verse 14, is this. God's glory is awesome. You might want to write that down. The word awesome fits here. You know, I have a friend named Jana who drives me crazy. Every time I use the word awesome for anything except God, she, she corrects me. It's very annoying. She and I laugh about it. And, and she'll say to me, well, Kim, how was your day? And I'll say, it was awesome. She'll say, no, it wasn't. Only God is awesome. Very irritating. I think she's probably going to be watching today online. And I think you and I might discover that Jana is right, that God's glory truly is awesome. This is the way that John says it in verse 14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here it is. We have seen his glory. You know, it makes me wonder, have I really, have I really seen his glory? You remember the song we often sing, Oh, Holy Night? where it says, fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. That's talking about awe, isn't it? Well, when was the last time that you felt awe over the incarnation? So much that you would want to fall on your knees? You know, when I use that big word incarnation, it's just a word that that, uh, came out of theology that means the arrival of God to earth in human form. And John says, the word became flesh. Now, let me ask you, why didn't John just use normal language and say, Jesus became a baby? Well, there's a very good reason for that. You see, John knew that the people of his day who would be reading his words came from different segments of life. Some were Jews, some were Greeks, and he knew they would have different perspectives. He didn't want any confusion about who Jesus is. So... Pastor Mark actually helped us unpack this three weeks ago when we studied John 1.1. He shared how, you know, the Christmas story doesn't just start at the, the manger, does it? It starts way back in the beginning. In fact, I wonder if you would just go ahead and read this verse out loud with me right now. You ready? Go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, Word, is actually coming from the Greek language, and it's the word logos. Logos, it means the divine word, but it also refers to meaning or reason. It's where we get our word logic from. And John knew that the philosophers of his day were thinking, if we could just find out the logos of life, you know, what it all means, then we would be fulfilled. That's how a lot of us think today. John is saying, Here is where we find meaning because Jesus is the complete revelation of God. John is saying this word, Jesus, 
was pre-existent with God. He has no beginning. In the beginning was the word. And then he says, this word, Jesus, was coexistent with God. It means he's a person. The word was with God. John is saying this word was co-equal with God. He says the word was God. See, John completely hems us in as to who Jesus is. The only way to appreciate the glory is to realize that in this little baby, John is making it really clear that this is God with an umbilical cord. You know, he became flesh. He emptied himself of his glory, but he did not empty himself of his deity. It's awesome. Now, if this is beginning to make your brain hurt a little bit, it's because we're touching on the mystery of the Trinity. God is one, and yet he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is beyond human comprehension. The only appropriate way to respond to him is with awe. Now, if you know some history, and many of John's readers did, it helps. Maybe some of you love history like I do, just watching the History Channel or whatever. Well, there's all kinds of history just woven into these few verses we're looking at today. See, many of John's readers were Jews, like I said, and they knew the history. They wouldn't be reading this account of his casually. So when John said, we beheld his glory, you know, the Jewish perspective of those words would be to be thunderstruck. You know, we've become so sentimental about the presence of God. You know, like cozying up to the fire with a cup of tea, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. That's not the way that the Bible depicts God's presence at all. In fact, these people who read this, they had perspective on God's glory. If you look at verse 17, it says this, for the law was given through Moses. John's readers knew about the law. Way before Jesus came, God had given the law to these rebellious people, and they had seen God's glory. We're talking about when he gave the Ten Commandments. Do you remember? Now, we got to do a series about the Ten Commandments way back in 2005. And our creative team actually put a relief of Mount Sinai right here on the stage. It was incredible. They put together with, with uh, two-by-fours and chicken wire and plaster and newspaper and paint. They actually built a, a, a resemblance of that awesome place where God revealed his glory. And they realized on Saturday night it wasn't even going to be done on time. So they put out this call and 25 people came to help finish it. And they were deep in paper mache and paint. It wasn't even dry on Sunday morning yet. And they said they should have been entered in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest paper mache mountain. And they also said they would never do it again. <laughs> I just love our creative team. Don't you? I'm so great. Isn't this beautiful? I agree. Well, God's people remembered the glory of God that was revealed there. In Exodus 19 and 20, when Moses went up the mountain to get those commandments, God was very concerned. He said to the people, don't come near the mountain. My glory is on that mountain. And if you touch it, you may die. God's glory. In Exodus 33, 
Moses said to God, show me your glory. Now, did, did God say to him, oh, sure, Moses, just cozy on up here? No, it was, Moses, if you see my glory, it will kill you. Awe is what's appropriate. On a side note, there's another fascinating little word right here in our theme verse for the day. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Would you circle that word dwelt? You know what that came from is a word that means pitched his tent or tabernacled. John's readers would have read that word and remembered the tabernacle. Back in the same time as Moses, God told the people, I'm still going to be with you. And he told them exactly how to build this place where people could go to experience the awesome glory of God. There was the outer part where people could go and make sacrifices and ask forgiveness for their sins. But there was the inner part called the Holy of Holies where only a priest could go and only once a year because the glory of God shone in that place with such intensity that it was too much for sinful people. In fact, they even put a rope on that priest's ankle just in case he died while he was in there. I mean, talk about respect. They did not approach God's presence casually. Now, are you getting a little uncomfortable Some people hate this whole idea. I mean, they think, is God cranky or cantankerous? I mean, is he like a boss who takes a limo to work because he doesn't want to deal with the riffraff? They dislike a God like that. Is this why God's glory is a fatal thing to us human beings? Well, you know, it's really very simple. It's because of who God is in his holiness and who we are. And I appreciate Tim Keller for a picture that he shared about the difference between us and this holy, awe-inspiring God. He, He compared it to a solar system. He said, the reason all the planets in a solar system can get along without colliding is they all have the same center to their orbit. If we think about God, he's at the center of all things. He makes everything turn on his own glory and his own goodness, around the truth, around his righteousness. But what if you think about us? What what do we have as our center? Do we make all our decisions based on truth, on righteousness? I mean, we might say, well, yeah, I'll consider that. But really, our actions and our decisions kind of turn around this question. Does it fulfill me? Is it comfortable for me? And when you get God and us humans together, what happens? What would be like getting planets together who have different centers to their orbit? There's tension. We might think, well, if you're in charge, then why did this happen? And we might even be surprised that we're just a little bit bitter at God, but we're at odds with him. And just like Adam and Eve, when they got near God, they had to run and dive into the leaves. Well, we find ourselves at odds with him too, running, scared of him. We feel guilty, we feel angry, yet we still have this desire for his beauty. Like Moses, we're saying, show me your glory, even though I'm afraid of you. There's, there's tension, different centers. Well, what's the answer 
It's right here. It's in the incarnation. I like how David Benner said it in his book, Surrender to Love. He said this, the incarnation is God reaching out across the chasm caused by our sin and starting the relationship all over again. The thing denied to Moses has come to us and we get to see his glory because the word became flesh and tabernacled here with us. He came to be the tabernacle. See, Jesus didn't come to just improve on the tabernacle, make it a better way to meet God. He came to complete it, to fulfill its purpose. When he became the sacrifice on the cross, he was actually called the Lamb of God. And that's why John says in verse 17, truth of the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, now we don't have to send a priest in to talk for us to God. We can come right into the presence of God ourselves, and his presence is no longer a fatal thing to us. He can melt us and change us and turn our hearts toward him. And that's why John had the audacity to say, we have seen his glory. I love this verse. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So this Christmas, listen, behold him. You might want to write that down. That's what we can do is behold him. Just like Mary looked into the face of her newborn son and beheld him, she marveled at the glory of God. Don't you think her mind was just boggled? Don't you think it had to reel with the wonder of it as she looked into his face? We can behold him too. But are you distracted? Do you ever find yourself mumbling, I hate Christmas? You know, it's going to take some intentionality on our part to behold him, to focus on him. Maybe this would be one approach. When you're reading your Bible, how about you pause and you stop and contemplate how you are beholding him. Maybe it's when you're walking in nature. Maybe that's where you connect and you can behold the Lord. Maybe it's when you see someone loving someone else that you can behold him this Christmas. I think that we will never sing a song like Oh Holy Night again the same way if we learn to behold him like John's talking about. Well, there's something else that I get from John's words. But before I tell you, I want to show you this picture that was taken in our lobby at Thanksgiving. This is our family, and it's precious to me because two of my very dearest people had traveled here to be with us. Our son, Ryan, who goes to school in SoCal, was here. And my mom traveled here, and she had only... Uh, just had a pacemaker installed exactly two weeks before she got on the plane to come out here from Florida. And she was surrounded by friends telling her, you can't do that. Don't fly across the country. You're not ready yet. But she decided to believe her doctor who told her that it was okay. And she practically went from her checkup appointment to the airport. And she was willing to get on that plane and do the wheelchair thing through the airport and all the plane changes and all. And I was so grateful because I felt her love. You see, as, as good as all of our means of com- communication are these days, there's nothing that says I love you like being there. 
Maybe you're going to be traveling for the holidays to some, somebody you love. Or maybe somebody you love is coming to you because, you see, love travels. In fact, that's the next thing I think John is saying to us right here in these verses. And that's this. God's love travels. The word became flesh. God became a human. Talk about love being willing to travel. I mean, the eternal word who created everything like this. Those may look like stars to you, but those are actually far away galaxies. The same God fashioned this. The earth where we live, everything that we see, this planet. He even delighted in making these. He made those puppies and even gave them their puppy smell. And the same God was willing to become this, a human embryo. Talk about love traveling. Why would he come so far? Well, look at verse 18. John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he's talking about Jesus, he has made him known. Would you underline that, has made him known? See, why did Jesus come so far? Well, it's to make his father's love known. Because love travels. Jesus didn't want you to be confused about who God is and who you are. You know, you're not just one of his creatures that he made. He wants you to be his friend. God created you with a non-negotiable dignity. That doesn't get wiped out even when we are sinful or rebellious. And that is love. You know, one of Jesus' favorite ways to make his father known was through stories. And one day he told a story about a rebellious son. Many of us have heard it called the the prodigal son. But really it's a story about the extravagant love of a father. A rich man had two sons. One day, the youngest one said to him, hey, I'm, waiting for you. I'm, I'm finished waiting for you to die. You know, I just want you to give me my inheritance and I'm out of here. So sadly, that father went ahead and gave half of all his, his possessions to his son. And the son took it and went to a faraway country where he squandered it all. And before long, he found himself broke and he, he just went to feeding pigs to make a living. And one day, he was sitting among those pigs and he realized You know, the hired servants at my dad's house have it better than I do. So he got his courage up, and he decided to head home. And he was rehearsing everything he was going to say, how he would beg for forgiveness and just ask to be a a servant. But seeing that son coming, the father was so thrilled, so overflowing with joy that he ran to meet his son. See, love travels. That dad ran to him. And he gave that boy a ring and a robe, and he ordered that a big celebration be put together right away. Well, hearing about that, the older brother got furious. I mean, in all of his years, he had been a responsible young man, and his irresponsible brother was off gallivanting around. Well, this this older brother had never asked his dad for anything. He had never been given a party. And he was resentful, and he refused to go in and celebrate. And now the father comes to this older son. Now, I want you to notice here that love made the move again. The father came to that son, and he comes and he says tenderly, 
my faithful son. You have always been with me, and, ha- and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate because this brother of yours who was dead is alive again. I love this story. You know, Jesus doesn't even give us the ending. But did you catch his point? How, how the older brother responded, we, we don't even really know. But Jesus is saying this to you and me. The Father's love does not hinge on our behavior. Isn't that good news? It's about the unconditional way that the Father loves us. You know, I can see the Father running to me after I have rebelled against him. And we never need to be afraid to come back to God, no matter what we've done or haven't done. Because God's love has nothing to do with our behavior. But you know who I can relate to even more? Is that dutiful older brother with his plodding obedience. I mean, he was law-bound. I can relate to his self-righteous indignation over how generous the father is. This son has a hard time relaxing into the father's love. You know, Jesus came to reveal his father to us, and this was groundbreaking in the day he told this story. You know, it's still just as radical today for us that this point, irresponsible behavior doesn't decrease the father's love. And responsible behavior doesn't increase it. The older brother has substituted a formula, a transaction for an encounter with the father's love. He was bound to the law. He was striving. And you know, what I find is that most of us strive like that. So when we hear about God's unconditional love, maybe deep inside of ourselves, we we kind of murmur, thanks but no thanks. Maybe we're falling back into subliminal messages we got from our childhood. And they were reinforced at Christmas time, weren't they? I mean, it actually feeds into a sort of weird theology that says... You better watch out. You better not cry. Because this mysterious figure who has godlike qualities is magically able to tell whether you've been good or bad. So be good for goodness sake. You know, the older brother, he had been very good. But he still wasn't enjoying a connected relationship with a father who was offering him love. He wanted to be able to contribute something to the deal. Do you ever find yourself approaching your relationship with God that way? I know I do. I desperately want to contribute my faith, my effort, my love. But the bottom line is that, the, that perfect love meets me right where I am. It says in verse 16, for from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. See, God just asked me to open my heart and receive the love I'm longing for. The funny thing about me, though, is I try really hard to do the right thing, to be good. I mean, like at work, you know, if the boss asks me to do something, I'm all over it. But I'm not always that responsible, not all the time. I mean, like with all the busyness of a holiday season, the laundry stacks up at my house, right? And my husband says to me, um, do you think you could do some laundry? I'm out of socks. And, well, before I can even think about it, what pops out of my mouth is, 
how about you wear your sandals today? <laughs> yeah, seems, it's not very cold outside anyway. You guys think I'm kidding. I think that was a really good solution that he wear his sandals. You know, I am grateful for grace because I am not all that responsible in every area. I fall pretty short. And it says in verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, would you underline that, line, that phrase, grace upon grace, and then maybe circle grace upon, I'm sorry, underline from his fullness, however you want to do it, circle grace upon grace, because what I want to ask you to do is draw an arrow from one phrase to the other. Because Jesus came to show us that his fullness is our hope, not our merit, not our gold stars. You know, I just want to be really honest with you. This has been the most personal part of this whole talk for me. It feels risky to lean into God's love like this because it requires me to get vulnerable. You see, it's one thing to know that God offers me love, but it's another thing entirely to allow him to love me unconditionally. You know, I tend to want to kind of keep my foot in the door about, you know, what I've done to deserve this love or how I've earned it. What about you? What do you think when you imagine how God looks at you? I mean, if you're like me, you might look around at others and say, well, that gal, that guy, they've got it all together. I know God probably loves them, but me, I think it, he's just tolerating me because I know me. Well, imagine if you were invited to a Christmas gathering and you heard who was invited, you know, the bright and the brilliant, the beautiful people. And you say, well, of course, they're invited. But then you hear about the awkward ones. You know, there's Uncle Rupert. He's kind of hard to take. Or the guy or the gal who talks too much. Oh, no. But then you think, you know, I'll just go and I'll blend in. And you, and you look around at that party and you think, you know, the host is probably just tolerating me. I'm, I'm not the life of the party here. And you think, I'm just being tolerated. But listen, God is the host. And he has invited you because of who he is. He came for those who had been labeled losers. He came for the prostitutes. He came for the addicts, for those that could never live up to their own ideals. People, he came to us, to you and to me. So here's the bottom line of the whole talk today. If you ever wonder if God's heart is big enough for you, then just remember how small God became for you. I heard about a, a woman who is a teacher in Dallas. She teaches significantly visually impaired kids. And she was coming up to her first parent-teacher conference, and there was an optician there in Dallas who said, well, I can help. I can make a pair of glasses for every parent there that will show them exactly what their kid can or cannot see. She said that night was incredibly emotional. That when those parents put those glasses on, that they started crying. And then their kids started crying, and she was crying. She said everybody was crying. Everybody was a mess. Now, why? Because of love. She said that love was palpable there. 
because those parents loved their kids. And for just a moment, they were able to enter into the experience of their child and understand what they were going through. You know, we all need to know that we're understood. Well, when I heard that story, I thought of what Jesus did for you and me when he came so far, when he became so small to reveal the Father's love to you and me. He gave up his glory. He put on an earth suit with the same limitations and sorrows that you and I face so that we can know that he understands our pain. It says in Hebrews 4 that we don't have a priest who's out of touch with our reality. You know what? This is one of the biggest differences between Christianity and every other world religion. See, others offer a God who is out there, who's remote. Only the God of Christianity has been in every bit of pain that you will ever face and more. You realize this? God understands you. He knows what you're feeling. So today, if you're in a season of struggle, Christmas can even magnify that hurt. It might be making the reality of the divorce even more real to you, or the reality of that illness that's taking someone you love away, or the reality of that tragedy that has struck. You might be wondering, does God really care? I mean, is there any logos, any meaning? Can God find any purpose in this? Well, listen, there is an emphatic yes in the manger in Bethlehem. It doesn't mean that there will be a rainbow and sunshine coming out, but what it does mean is that God understands your pain and he has promised to be with you. You know, as I thought more about those children, about the parents who put on those glasses so that they could understand their child's reality better, I thought of a major difference. See, God never needed glasses in order to understand me correctly, did he? He, he put on weakness, yes, but it wasn't so that he could see me better. It was to give me new glasses to see him, to understand his glory, to understand his unfathomable, extravagant love for me. So here's what you can do this Christmas. Surrender to his love. God is head over heels in love with you, recklessly in love with you. The Bible says that he has your name engraved on the palm of his hand. Did you know that God has a tattoo? It's your name. He loves you. So receive that love. Let go of the efforts that you have put in to earn that love. Yeah, there's going to be days when we might feel overwhelmed at Christmas, but let those very moments turn into the, the times that you remember that Jesus came to show you the Father. Go ahead and put on those glasses again and remember the love that moved him to get near you. Let his love move you to surrender your efforts to earn him. And just go ahead and receive that grace upon grace that Jesus poured over you at the cross. Can we pray together? and ask him to help us with this. God, we thank you for the opportunity that comes once a year 
to take a closer look at who you are, Jesus. <laughs> I think about what we often turn Christmas into, family gatherings and decorations and parties and presents, and all of that is good, and yet, Lord, we have domesticated you. We have tamed you when we forget to acknowledge your glory. Help us to do that, Lord, to behold you. And Lord, some of us need to really lean into your love this morning and know that there is no earning your love. There's nothing that can augment the incredible love that you showed us at Calvary. Lord, help us to receive your love and to surrender to it and to give up our own efforts. And just know that your transforming power will come in when we acknowledge that it's your fullness that has given us this grace upon grace. I pray for the person, Lord, who needs to put their trust in Christ for the first time today. Lord, give him or her courage to do that, to say yes to your gift. And we thank you, Lord, for meeting us here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.